Amen. Good morning, church. Man, what a week, right? Uh, it's going to get noisier from here on out, isn't it? Which is why it's so good to come here to the church house and to sing to our Lord with our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? This is, as those songs are being sang, it's like knocking my soul back into alignment of, don't, don't chase after this, don't, don't chase after that. It's noisy. But God has a plan. He has a grand redemptive plan that he is working out, and he is so, so worthy of praise, and so, so worthy of worship. And so I hope that you're here today because you want to hear more about God's grand plan of redemption, that you want to see how it's at work and how you are a part of it. You know, last Sunday we studied Isaiah 49, and we learned a lot about God's grand plan, and uh, it's been on my heart and my mind all week. I've been trying to keep it fresh and at, at the front end of it so that I can think about God, you're so amazing. Help me to be in awe of you. Help me not to be distracted by all the noise. Help me to look and see what you are doing and how worthy of praise you are. And I hope that's been the case for you as well. If you're new here this morning, welcome. Uh, Glad you're with us. We are in week three of four of a series in Isaiah. And we're calling this four-week series, The Suffering Servant. Because each week we are taking one of the four servant songs of Isaiah and studying them. These songs were a prophetic writing from Isaiah, pointing ahead to the ideal servant, the one whom God has appointed for his people and for his namesake. And as we've been through this series now, this will be our third week in it, as we've been through this series, we've learned a little bit about how the Israelite nation was supposed to be God's righteous representatives. They were supposed to represent his will and ways on the earth. They, by the way that they operated, by the way that they obeyed God, they were to reflect God's glory to the watching world, to show the world how sweet it is when you walk in intimate fellowship and obedience with God. And yet they have failed miserably at that calling. Rather than obeying and delighting in the one true God, they've gone their own way. And they've worshipped their own pleasures. They've worshipped created things idols and bowed down to them. And yet none of that caught God by surprise. He knows, as we heard in Psalm 139, I didn't know Mark was going to read that, God knows our hearts. He knows that our hearts are prone to wander. And his plan all along was to send that ideal servant, the one who would represent and reflect him to this world. And that's not the Israelite nation, but rather Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. And so what we've been hearing over these last few weeks is Isaiah is prophesying 700 years in advance of the birth and the coming of Jesus. And if you were here last week, we got to marvel at the fact that the servant himself spoke through the prophet Isaiah. And so we heard Jesus speaking to us through Isaiah, foretelling of how he would be born and come into the world. It was just absolutely incredible. God's grand plan is far greater than anything we could have come up with. And if you're here and you've missed either of those first two sermons in this series, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them because they have built on one another. And and that's what's going to be the case today as we we study this chapter. And so today, um, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 50. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. That's page 354 if you grabbed one of those uh, blue Bibles on the way in this morning. And as you turn there to Isaiah chapter 50, I just want to give you a little bit of background again on what's happened between the last servant song when wasn't that long ago, chapter 49, and then what we're going to be entering into this morning. And so if you were here again last week, you may recall that 
the end of our time together was a time of rejoicing. It was a call to respond to God's grand plan of redemption. In Isaiah 49, verse 13, here's what we read. It said this, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. That is the appropriate response when you see all that God is doing, that he has a grand redemptive plan. But unfortunately, the Israelites do not join in on the singing. Listen to how they respond in the very next verse. In Isaiah 49, verse 14, it says this, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. They're convinced that God has left them, that he's forgotten all about them as they're in exile in Babylon. What could there be to, be to be rejoicing in when God is not with us, when God has forgotten us? We're going to die apart from him. You can kind of hear the noisiness of their souls. They're forgetting. Right? They're forgetting who God is. They're forgetting what he has said. And God goes on to speak through Isaiah in the coming verses uh, through the rest of 49 and into the early parts of chapter 50 that he will rescue them. Because he loves them. No power can separate God from his people. He is greater than all. No one can separate them from God. And so listen to how he finishes up this response. I'm going to give you just the last two verses, which we find in chapter 50, verses 2 and 3. God says this, Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for a lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. God's point is, I am all powerful. I am able to rescue and redeem my people. His character informs his promises. And so that ought to have been a great hope for the Israelites as they hear, God is going to do a great work of redemption. But they still continue to struggle to trust God. Disbelief just runs rampant in their people. Which is why what comes next is so important. And that's what we're going to spend our time in today. Because unlike disbelieving Israel, the ideal servant trusts God. He listens and learns from God, and he obeys God, even when it's hard. And so let's listen to this ideal servant now. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 4 of chapter 50 of the book of Isaiah. We're going to read all the way down to verse 11. So I want you to notice, too, as we get into this, this is the servant speaking. Okay, so this perspective has changed. The servant is speaking again through Isaiah. Here's what he says. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. 
He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Then we have another perspective change here. Now Isaiah is going to begin speaking again. He says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Whew. Quite the ending there, isn't it? The servant is a lot different than Israel. He listens and he learns from God. And he trusts God, which leads him to respond much differently when, when things get hard, when there's suffering and trials. Right? We see here the servant does not fear men, and he does not turn away from God, unlike Israel. Instead, he, he leans into the Lord. He trusts God to vindicate him. He knows that God will be his help. And he doesn't run away from hard things. You see, the servant is the ideal Israel. He's the one to whom all must look. Especially when we're, we're facing sufferings, when we're facing trials, when we're facing challenges. Do you got any of those in your life right now? Do you feel a little weary this morning? Look to the ideal servant when you're tempted to fear man. Or run from hard circumstances. And don't just look to him. But respond to Isaiah's call there in verses 10 and 11. To join the servant in trusting and obeying God. That's the example that he set for us. That's what he's calling us to. This has been a hard year. I was talking with the worship team before we came down here. And you know, my prayer was that we would take to heart the, the lyrics of the songs we, we sang this morning and the passage that we're about to study, that these wouldn't just be words on our lips, but that we would truly milk them for all their worth in our life, that they would change us, that they would influence the way that we live. It's a hard year. The circumstances in our nation, maybe even in your own home, have not been easy. But we can look to the servant as we face these challenges. In fact, we must look to him. And so what we're going to see is that what Isaiah is speaking about here, what the servant is speaking about through Isaiah, that's exactly what Jesus did in his life and ministry. Jesus is the ideal Israel. He is the ideal servant, the one whose example we ought to follow. And so in the time we have remaining, we're going to look to his example and learn three life lessons from God's chosen servant. Three life lessons from God's chosen servant. And the first one comes from verses 4 and 5. So go ahead and look back in your Bibles at verses 4 and 5 here. Here's what it said. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. What you're hearing from this servant is he's sharing God has done a work in him. God has been at work in him, and it's not gone to waste. God has given this servant the tongue of those who are taught. 
He awakens the servant's ear each morning to listen and learn from God. And the servant has responded well. He has listened. He has learned. And that's our first life lesson from God's chosen servant. Learn from God. In fact, you could say, listen and learn from God. But the blank is, learn from God. We see, we see a stark contrast. Israelites over here on one end, hard-hearted, blind, deaf, dumb, right? That's what we've seen. And then the ideal servant over here who listens and learns, who obeys, who trusts, and who walks by faith. This servant is a teachable one. The phrase here, of those who are taught, you see it twice in verses 4 and 5, means of a disciple. So the servant has the tongue and the ear of a disciple. He's someone who can listen and learn from the master teacher, God. That's the kind of person that he is. And when you, again, hold him up against the Israelites, consider the difference. Right? For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Israelites have not been listening and learning from God. They've been turning aside from the one true God to, to follow after pagan idols and, and false hopes and worldly pleasures and treasures. Even though God had said, hey, look, you are my people. Walk with me and I will walk with you. Obey me and I will bless you. They didn't do that. They didn't obey. They didn't have the ear of a disciple. You can go all the way back to the start of the nation of Israel. When, when God sends them into the promised land, he says, hey, I want you to drive out all of the Canaanites. This is your land. Take ownership of it. I've prepared it for you. But you have to get rid of all of them, lest you intermarry and they lead you astray. Well, if you know the story of the nation of Israel, what did they do? They didn't listen. They didn't learn from God. And so they didn't drive out all of the Canaanites. And guess what happened? Their sons and their daughters intermarried, and then they were led astray to worship after false gods, which is the start of generation after generation choosing to live in a rebellious and sinful way, all because they weren't willing to listen and learn, all because they didn't have an ear to hear. They thought that they knew better than God. Let's think about that for a moment, right? As 21st century Christians with our refined sensibilities, surely we know better, right? Surely we wouldn't repeat that pattern. Now, as I say up north in Minnesota, you betcha, right? You betcha. We follow in the same pattern, the same footsteps. Just like the Israelites of Isaiah's day, we have the privilege of having God's revealed word given to us. In fact, we have all of God's revealed word given to us. We have more than they had available. And yet, how often do we fail to pick this up and to listen from it and to learn from it what God has for us? It is very easy to fill our days with noise. I'm speaking from personal experience. I'm an expert at filling my day with noise. And it's not even bad things all the time, right? I mean, providing for your family, working hard at your job. Perhaps you're a student and you're in school right now. I mean, those aren't bad things. Those are good things. And yet, in the midst of all of those things, we neglect the most important thing, a thriving relationship with our Creator. Right? We flipped everything upside down. We put the most important thing last. And what we really need to consider are the ramifications of doing that. 
Let's, let me talk to the parents in the room for a minute. Right? Parents, you have been entrusted with leading your children. God has called you to be a listener and a learner from God so that you can then teach your children how to listen and learn from God. The same is true for grandparents or aunts and uncles. And what happens when that cycle is broken, when a parent does not take it seriously to listen and learn from God and his word? They can't fulfill what God has called them to do and equip them to do. And so if you're here this morning and you are a dad or a mom or a grandma or a grandpa or aunt or an uncle, realize that you have been entrusted with a great entrustment. These little souls, these little lives. And how is your current pursuit of the Lord going to help you lead them to know God? I want to encourage you to pursue the Lord. Make this a priority in your life. Listen and learn from his word. And frankly, it doesn't matter whether you have kids or not. Right? So now we broaden this out to everyone. Right? God has called us as disciples to be disciple makers. If you're here this morning and you profess to follow Christ, you're expected to spiritually reproduce, to be a listener and learner from the Lord so that you can then go and teach others what it means to follow Christ so that they can listen and learn from the Lord. And so if you're here and, and you're neglecting to draw near to God yourself, if you're putting the creation before your creator, just realize the ramifications of that. To the degree that you're neglecting your walk with the Lord and, and being willing to be a learner from God, you're hindering your ability to, to fulfill the purpose that he's, that he's given you, the reason which he's made you to be his ambassador, to represent him here on this earth. And as Elena's Morissette said, isn't it ironic? Sorry, I couldn't resist, but, right? You, you spend your time working to put food on the table, to pay the bills, and yet you're forgetting that there is a God who holds all of creation in his hands, including that paycheck, including the food that you're planning to put on the table. Right? Why do we get it so flipped? Why do we pursue the wrong thing? What if you were to prioritize listening and learning from God first. How might that change the way that you live and the way that your, your family functions? Let's consider how it changed the servant's life. Verse 4 tells us that he was discipled for a reason. He says, that I may know how to sustain with a word. Right? The servant learned how to sustain others with his words. In fact, a word. That's how powerful it is, a word. You see, by listening and learning from God, the servant was then able to sustain and be a blessing to others. And specifically, we see that he sustains those who are weary. Let's think about how that was fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. We've read this already earlier this year in Matthew. In Matthew 9, we saw Jesus' example lived out. He said, uh, Matthew records, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' ministry, his life, was full of compassion. He looked upon the needs of those who were weak and weary, harassed and helpless, 
And he offers them hope. And that hope is ultimately the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, that there is an eternity ahead and we need to be waiting and preparing for it, that they could be rescued and redeemed from being rebels against the holy God to being children of that same God. He gave them that hope. And as he provided that spiritual hope, he also met their physical needs. He gave them a physical hope. And listen to what he says just a short while later. We haven't studied this passage yet. It's coming up later this year. But in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is speaking to the weary He promises, I will give you rest. And that rest is only possible through yoking yourself to Jesus, God's ideal servant. To take up his yoke means to link up with Jesus, to walk in his ways, to go in his paths, to live the way that Jesus lived, adopting his teachings and priorities for your life. It's like two ox that are yoked together I believe we have a photo of that. There you go. I mean, I'm not a farmer, so maybe that's helpful for you to see. The, the oxen need to go in the same path if the farming is going to be effective or if they're going to drag that massive log that's behind them. So you put a yoke on so they can go together and accomplish the mission. Jesus is saying to those who are weary, come yoke yourself to me. Live my way. Walk in these priorities. And he says that if you do this, it provides rest for your souls. Now, if that wasn't proof enough of Jesus' fulfillment of Isaiah 50, let me show you one more passage. Consider Hebrews chapter 1. Here's what the author of Hebrews records. But in these last days, he, that's God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So there you're hearing that Jesus upholds the entire created order with his word. But that's how powerful his word is. Because he is a disciple of the Lord, he is able to sustain not just those who are weary, but all things. That's how powerful he is. He is worthy of your trust. And maybe you think, okay, well, what in the world am I supposed to do with all of this, Nick? What, why are you walking us through this? Well, the call that I'm giving to you today is to look to the servant and live. Listen and learn from God and his word and let it sustain you. Jesus can sustain you in your weariness. He can provide rest for your souls. You see, the Christian walk is not about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't work your way into heaven. Salvation is a gracious gift from the Lord, and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But one thing you do need to realize is that as a Christian, you are called to respond to God. You are called to obey, right? That is our responsibility. A Christian listens, learns, and obeys. That's the expected outcome. So rest in the sustaining servant. 
rest in him, as you live in obedience to him. So let's not, let's not be here this morning or walk out of here this morning and make excuses about how busy we are. Lord, I have too much going on. I can't obey you. I can't listen and learn from you. My, my life is too noisy. I'm overwhelmed. I cannot do it. Life isn't too hard for you to obey the Lord. It's not too busy for you to obey the Lord. He is with you. He cares for you. The creator of all things will sustain you. So if you're here this morning and you are stuck and you're in this pattern of, of making excuses for why you can't listen and learn from God, then I want to lovingly call you to repent of that today. Don't keep walking in that path. It will not go well for you. It's a foolish path that has serious consequences, not only for you, but for all those whom you're called and equipped to be discipling, to be investing in, to be teaching and training up, to listen and learn from God. He wants you to be his ambassador, to represent him, to invest in others. So again, if that's you this morning, if you're struggling and you're stuck in this pattern of making excuses, repent of, of spiritual apathy, repent of laziness, or maybe it's that you're overwhelmed and you just need to cry out to the Lord. Have a good cry session with the Lord in prayer. God, I need you. This is too much for me, but it's not too much for you. Help me to trust and obey. At the end of the day, I'm encouraging you to dwell on the beauty of the servant's example. Allow it to motivate you for how you live and allow it to motivate you to be a disciple. The servant, as we heard, was not rebellious and he did not turn away from God. He obeyed. And that's not the only life lesson that we have from the servant today. Let's go ahead back to the text in Isaiah 50 and let's read verses 6 through 9. Here's what it said in verses 6 through 9. The servant says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. You see, the servant's obedience to God, it allows him to trust God in the midst of trial and suffering. And that's our second life lesson today. Trust God in suffering. Trust God in suffering. And if you think about Jesus Christ and his life and ministry, he faced a little bit of, of suffering in his life and ministry, didn't he? Especially as we get towards the end of his life and ministry on earth. And so listen to this. Listen to how Jesus fulfills this prophecy yet again at the end of his life. I'm going all the way to the end of the gospel of Matthew now, to the last day of Jesus' life. We're going to join uh, the high priest and the council as Jesus is on trial be- before them. And here's what, what we're walking into the high priest is saying, what is your judgment? In Matthew 26. And they answered him, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, 
Who is it that struck you? And then just a few verses later, in the next chapter of Matthew, Matthew records, now we're before the Romans. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Not a wise thing to say. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I don't know if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ. That movie, in in quite graphic detail, uh, shows the scourging scene. And if you've seen it, you probably haven't forgotten it. It's, It's that ingrained in your brain. It's horrific to see what the Romans have done. Right? They tied Jesus up to the whipping post, and they take the cat of nine tails, and they just go to town on him. And this, in Isaiah 50, verse 6, seems pretty sterile. It says, I gave my back to those who strike. And when you read that in Isaiah, you don't really necessarily think about what that entails, what that means. It's, it's nice and sterile, in a sense. But when you watch that movie and you see this, you know, again, it's a depiction of what happened. It's not like they were there shooting it live. But you see the nails on the cat of nine tails ripping into him. Suddenly that puts on a whole new show of what's happening here. This is horrific. The suffering servant has endured so much. And yet he trusted God in the midst of it. And that passage in Matthew continues. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. That's Jesus. That's the ideal servant, the Son of God. And he trusted his Father in the midst of suffering. Why would he do that? Why would he go through all of that? Because he knows suffering isn't meaningless. It's not meaningless. And and when the Israelites read Isaiah 50 so many years before that, they wouldn't have fully understood why in the world is this ideal servant suffering? What is the purpose of this? until they got to Isaiah 53, the next servant song, which we're going to cover next week. But here's what it says. I'm just going to give you a a little snippet of it. In verse 5 of Isaiah 53, it says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The servant suffered so that God's chosen people could be rescued and redeemed, so that God's chosen people could be forgiven of their sins. And so he trusts God in his suffering because he knows God is doing a grand work of redemption. He has a plan, and and the servant is a part of it, and so he will trust God. That's important for us to, to latch onto. This suffering whether it's, it's the Messiah's suffering or whether it's the suffering you're going through today or this, this year, it's not meaningless because God is able to produce good through it. That suffering is not meaningless because God is able to produce good 
through it. In fact, he forces it to do good to you if you're one of his people. That's a concept that we see all over the scriptures. You go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, you see it in the story of Joseph. Joseph was put through a little bit by his brothers. He knew a little bit about suffering, and here's what he says at the end of that whole story. In Genesis 50, Joseph said to them, Don't fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. Right? He suffered. He suffered at their hands. He was sold into slavery. He was accused wrongly by Potiphar's wife. He says, but God meant it for good. To bring it, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph was part of God's plan. God's grand plan of redemption. And because he was willing to suffer and he trusted God when he suffered... Through that, God brought about the salvation of, physical salvation of many nations through a worldwide famine. Many people survived because Joseph trusted God in suffering. Let's look at the New Testament. The same concept is in the New Testament. I want to show you two passages from Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, Paul writes this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time in this life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's no comparison. Present sufferings cannot equate to the glory that is ours in Christ. And just a little bit later in the same chapter, in verse 28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In those passages, Paul is saying, look, if you're part of God's family, if you are a Christian, then, then you will suffer. That's part and parcel of walking with Jesus. But the result is worth it glorification of being with God where he is in eternity forever. It's so worth it. And the promise is that God is working for your good. If you're one of his children, if you've been adopted into his family, then even suffering is doing good unto you because God is over that. Those are some really great promises for us to cling to as Christians. That ought to give us great hope in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering. And frankly, that's the example of the servant. We can look to him and learn to trust God in suffering. The servant knows, right? If you think about what we read in Isaiah 50, the servant knows that God helps him. God is the one who vindicates him. That's what he says in verses 7 through 9. It's because of God's help that he knows he will not be disgraced or ashamed. God is the judge. God is the vindicator of his people. He has the final say in the servant's life, and in your life. To vindicate means to declare just, to declare righteous, not guilty. And because the servant knows God's on my side, he doesn't fear. He doesn't fear those who would oppose him, those who would try to contest with him, those who would try to shame him. In fact, what we see is he says, okay, come on, stand up with me. We'll go to court together. You can make your case. I'll make mine. And his case is, he points to God and he says, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? 
That's his answer. And the, the assumed answer to that question is no one can declare him guilty. God is the judge, no one else. And he says, behold, all of them, meaning his accusers, those who are trying to shame him, will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Right in light of eternity, they will fade away. They don't have the final say. God does. And so as you think about this, as you process this this morning, if you realize that the sovereign God of the universe is on your side and that he is forcing all things to do good to you and that there is no shame that another human being can can lay on you, that's freeing. That ought to encourage you. That ought to maybe take some weight off of your back this morning. God alone is your judge, no one else. And he helps and vindicates. So carry on. Right? Keep, keep pursuing him. Carry on the work that he's entrusted to you. And don't allow threats from others to stop you from following Christ. Don't allow uh, opposition to discourage you from the call that God has given you to obey him and to worship him. Keep pressing on. And if we continue to consider the servant's example, this ought to set our path firmly. Right? He says, I have set my face like a flint. He's not moving. He's not swaying in his, his walk with, with God. His trust in God is unswerving in the face of suffering. His eyes are on the mission of pleasing God. And again, we see this fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I'm going to take you back to the book of Hebrews real quick. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4, consider what the author writes. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The author of Hebrews gets it. He understands Jesus, the suffering servant, is the example that you ought to look to as you run the race of faith. Don't let sin, don't let temptation, don't let discouragement have the final say. Don't let it take you out of the race. Look to Jesus and run with endurance. As the servant pointed out, your accusers will fade away. God will vindicate his disciples. He has the final say. And whether that's in this lifetime or in eternity, we can trust that God will judge justly. That's a freeing thing. Now, we don't have time to read this passage, but I want to encourage you to take your bulletin if you're a note taker and write down Romans 8, 31 through 39 on your bulletin. And I want to encourage you to carve out some time either later today or earlier in the week to, to read that and just soak on that. There are some additional just great truths about the vindication of our God in our lives. Romans eight thirty one through 39. 
But for now, let's go to our last life lesson. Obey the voice of the servant. Obey the voice of the servant. And we find this in in, uh, chapter 50 of Isaiah, verses 10 and 11. Let me read Isaiah 50, 10 and 11 for you again. This is Isaiah speaking, remember. He says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So as we shift our perspective back to Isaiah, what he's saying is, look, you need to fear the Lord. You need to obey the voice of God's servant. Those two things are synonymous, fearing the Lord and obeying the servant. And because the servant hears from God and he speaks from that, to obey him is to obey God. Again, this is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Quickly here, John 14, 23 and 24, listen to Jesus' words. Jesus answered him and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him, And whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus, as the ideal servant, speaks God's words. He speaks for God the Father. And to obey Jesus, to obey the ideal servant, is to obey God. What we see here in Isaiah 50 in these last two verses is there's two types of people in this world. There are those who trust God by obeying the servant's voice and those who trust in themselves and do what's right in their own eyes. They don't obey the servant's voice. And what I found fascinating when I was studying this is that both categories of people are given some hard news. Right? Isaiah says in verse 10, if you're of the people who trust God, that you need to do that even as you walk in darkness. He's talking about suffering and pain. He hasn't left that behind. There will be suffering and pain for the life of someone who listens and trusts God. Now, last week, we briefly touched on the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23. I just mentioned it, that some of what the suffering servant songs were bringing up probably would have reminded the Israelites of David's famous psalm. And I I think this would have done the same today. Think about this. Trust God even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Fear no evil, because God is with you. As your good shepherd, allow his rod and his staff to comfort you. Walk in obedience, even when it seems as if the way is hard, or it seems scary, because God is with you. He sustains you. Those are some beautiful truths. And that's what happens as we obey the voice of the servant. Now, commentator John Oswald puts it this way, and this is an extended quote, but I thought it was worth sharing. He says, Those who follow the servant may indeed walk with him into the darkness of frustration, injustice, humiliation, and abuse. But this does not mean they should forego their reliance on God. Through all the ages, the children of God have equated God's blessing with comfort and a sense of well-being. But that was not the way of the servant. 
So the challenge is again and again, do not cast away your confidence. Wait on the Lord. Put your hope in him. Trust in the reputation and the character, the name of the Lord, and rely on your God. This is the example that we have in the servant. As has just been powerfully expressed in verses 5 through 7. Thus the prophet is saying to his people, people who are wondering whether their dark situations are evidence that God has forgotten them, that they must trust God in the darkness. If they are to become the servants of God, they are called to be in the image of the servant who declares God's way to them. Those are challenging and powerful words. God, my my family says they're going to disown me for following you. Trust me. Rely on me. My coworkers are mocking me for my faith. Trust me. Rely on me. I thought things would get easier when I professed to follow you. Trust me. Rely on me. Distance learning and COVID-19 are so hard. Trust me. Rely on me. I'm worried about what's happening in our nation. What's going to happen this year? Trust me. Rely on me. And as you follow in the servant's footsteps of learning and trusting and obeying God, you will be an excellent ambassador on this earth. You will respond well in the face of sin and suffering. You will be a disciple maker who leaves a lasting legacy for the Lord. The alternative is to trust in yourself, which we see in verse 11 doesn't turn out so well. Right? Isaiah appears to be saying that if you kindle your own fire, your own torch, kind of imagine that, you've lit your own fire and you're seeking to walk and to guide yourself by it, the result of that is you are opposed by God and you lie down in torment. That's, that's a big deal. The eternal outcome of relying on self rather than the Lord is being separated from the presence of God to bless. It's eternal death in hell. And that's not a small thing, which is why Isaiah is warning the Israelites, don't choose that path. Don't, don't walk in that way. Trust God. Follow the servant. Obey his voice. The path of self-reliance does not end well. So again, if you're here this morning and you're not actively trusting in the Lord, if you're not learning from him, if you're not willing to obey the voice of his servant, can I counsel you to turn from that path? Repent while there's still time, right? This is important. This is a big deal. So draw a line in the sand today and say, Lord, I don't want to continue living this way. I want to walk in the way that you call me to live. I know that I haven't been living for you. Please help me to start living for you. Rescue me from my sin. Help me to walk in faith. And it doesn't matter whether that's a cry for the very first time of faith and repentance or whether that's a cry because as a Christian, you've you've been stuck in sin for a while. The point is, look to the Lord and live. Walk with him. Let's end in prayer. Jesus, thank you for your words here in Isaiah. Thank you for giving us these words through your prophet. Help us to consider them. Help us to be, frankly, wrecked by them and encouraged and built back up by them. 
Lord, may we see that when we walk in our own ways, it doesn't doesn't go well. Our hearts are noisy when we try to do this life in our own strength. We, We think that we're doing the right thing by staying busy and yet we neglect you. We neglect the Father. And so we're crying out to you this morning for help and seeing and thinking and believing correctly. Thank you for your example. Thank you for that you've not just called us to live a certain way, but you went before us and you showed us how to live and you've prepared the way for us. And and frankly, Lord, we know that we can't do this apart from you. This isn't just a matter of, I'm I'm gonna tweak some things, I'm gonna do things a little bit better starting this week, but... God, I'm going to bow the knee. I'm going to turn from self-reliance and I'm going to walk with you in faith and by the grace that you provide. And so we're praying for that grace today. Or we're praying that you would convict us and encourage us where needed so that we can walk for you this week. So we can be a powerful ambassador for Christ that in the midst of the noise, in the midst of the uncertainty, we would stand on the rock and we would trust in you. So, Lord, help us to be men and women who listen and learn, who trust you in the midst of suffering, and who obey your voice and get busy walking with you each and every day. Jesus, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.